Well, today we welcome you to the final serious seminar of the spring 2019 semester. Uh, tonight we're honored to have with us a team from right here at Purdue, uh, and I will turn it over to Eric Go, to uh, who is with the Rosen Center for Academic Computing here at Purdue and uh, has been responsible for several projects uh, that uh, develop systems to support academic research, and we'll um, get a chance to look at one of those today. So, Eric. Thank you. I'm here with this uh, undergraduate student team, and we're going to tell you about the Purdue Live Security Analyzer, Pulsar. I'm going to give a basic overview, and then the students will go through and provide you uh, details about the implementation and the impact that it provides uh, on Purdue's network. So the real goal of this uh, particular project is to enhance the cybersecurity on Purdue's research network. So we identified that there was a gap uh, in the cybersecurity framework for research, and that gap was there was no network-based uh, monitoring or intrusion detection. And so the goal of, that, uh, of this project is to, is to implement uh, network monitoring and intrusion detection on the campus research network. So we have some project goals and motivation to do this. What we would like to do is empower Purdue's faculty to be able to conduct research that has heightened cybersecurity requirements. So think of uh, us aligning the research network cybersecurity framework with the cybersecurity framework that is uh, in industry, maybe at an aerospace, uh, aerospace company or uh, a defense uh, company. The second goal is to aid cybersecurity researchers, which you guys it might be you guys that are in this room, by using this system to produce network data and then anonymize that data and provide it back to you. The last goal is to engage undergraduate students and mentor them in the deployment and design of this advanced uh, cyber infrastructure. So this is a NSF supported project under the cybersecurity Innovation for Cyber Infrastructure Program, and it's a collaboration between Sirius, Computer Science, Computer Information Technology, Research Computing, and IT Security and Policy. So uh, a broad team uh, has has been uh, has been assembled to to solve this problem. So here are uh, some of the people that are involved: project leadership at the PI and co-PI level. We also have the student team, which is very diverse. We have a lot of people who have worked on this. Uh, over about the past uh, year and a half to two years. And the student team includes people from, or undergraduate students from Purdue and from Ivy Tech, and also two high school students who did summer work for us last year and are now enrolled as freshmen in the upcoming class of, of Purdue. We also have mentors and staff from RCAC and ITSP. And the, the important part of this project is that the design and implementation was led by the student team and they got help from the mentors. So I was a mentor and worked with them to help in this advanced deployment of a network monitoring system. So the student team is gonna give you, uh, give you an overview of, of what we did. Uh, this is Shivam Trivedi. He is a graduating senior in CIT. Lauren Featherstone, also a graduating senior in CIT and Brian Wirtz, who is graduating from Ivy Tech this year. So take it away, guys. Um, 
So hello, I'm Shivam, and I was responsible for the student engineering and systems administration side of the project as we built the system. Uh, and I worked on this project for the entire duration of the uh, project. So just to give you some overview about how large Purdue's research infrastructure is, we have over 200 Purdue research groups that use the research computing resources. Uh, these include all of our community clusters, uh, which provide compute to researchers. Uh, we have uh, several world-class supercomputing clusters, uh, thousands of nodes, and uh, we've had multiple top 500 supercomputers on, in our infrastructure over the last few years. Uh, we have multiple petabyte scale data storage uh, resources, uh, some for uh, like immediate uh, result storage and like high uh, performance storage, and some for like cold storage where you're trying to store like petabytes of data uh, in uh, for a long period of time. Uh, Purdue ranks among the top US universities in terms of research computing cyber infrastructure. Uh, and um, this uh, most of it comes from our research infrastructure. Uh, we transfer hundreds of terabytes of data, both to and from the peer institutions daily. And uh, this entire um, uh, process is done over our high speed, de dedicated high-speed network, which follows a science DMZ model. So a science DMZ model uh, is uh, very unique uh, because it provides certain um, uh, characteristics to allow research to uh, be performed at a very uh, high speed. So the science DMZ uh, model, uh, as you can see right here, uh, is the uh, green line right here. So what the science DMZ model does is that it bypasses all of campus infrastructure. Uh, and this is done at a very uh, low latency, uh, on a very low latency link and a very high throughput link. So this basically effectively provides a friction-free network for high speeds, uh, high speeds and minimal packet loss. Uh, it's optimized for high-performance uh, scientific applications uh, than uh, what a commodity network would look like. Um, another important uh, uh, characteristic of Science DMZ is that the security policies are tailored to not impact the high-performance science environment. So in this scenario, uh, it is important that there's a consistent high throughput that is maintained uh, to transfer large amounts of data, as well as uh, a low latency is maintained, because no additional latency can be added to the network. Uh, so this model allows us to not be affected by a commodity uh, network, which is like Purdue's Wi-Fi or student computers or anything of that sort. Uh, so speaking of Purdue's network, uh, this is a very nice uh, overview of what Purdue's uh, research infrastructure looks like. Um, as you can see right here, uh, there's the uh, uh, wide area net network, the campus core, and the research core. So these are like the three layers uh, in our um, network, uh, networking environment. And uh, the campus core, uh, uh, and campus core, as you can see, is connected to data center and campus. So that's basically where the commodity network lies. And we are uh, like down here, which are connected directly to the research core. Uh, so. As you can see, um, the science DMZ and the commodity networks are slightly separated. And the commodity network usually passes through an inline IDS, uh, IPS. And uh, on the other hand, the researcher network is just uh, used mostly, uh, uses mostly the 100 gig fiber optic links. So 
as you can see some of the arrows here, so uh, let's say a traditional packet. For example, you're sitting um, on a laptop in one of the academic buildings and you're using PAL, a wireless uh, uh, system, and you try to access something on the internet. So you can see these dark blue arrows right here. Uh, that's the path it would take. So it would go from the campus network to the campus core, then it would go up to the internet edge, and then it'll go through the link with the IPS on it. Uh, to the internet. So this IPS provides some inline security for the, um, uh, for, for the computer that is on a commodity network. Um, on the other hand, uh, the traffic from research goes a different way depending on the type of traffic, especially if it's to another peer institution. Uh, so on the bottom right, you can see this um, cluster called CMS. Uh, CMS is our, uh, uh, CMS is one of our supercomputing clusters which consistently generates a lot of network traffic. And uh, we are a tier two CERN uh, supercomputing facility. So what happens is that CMS um, uh, transfers a lot of data to and from the uh, CERN facility in Geneva. So this is, uh, CMS is like a huge uh, uh, generator of network traffic for us. So a typical, uh, traffic uh, from CMS would go to a research core. It would go up to the campus core. And as you can see, it's bypassing all the campus infrastructure, like the commodity infrastructure, goes to the internet edge. And because uh, CERN would technically be classified as an internet to or a peer institution where uh, they are part of the research institutions, they would bypass the IPS uh, to go out to the Indiana Gigapop. So as you can see, uh, very high throughput links all the way through, and we try to introduce as little latency as possible as it goes out to the internet. So because of uh, such a large scale of the problem, there are a lot of challenges that we had to think about before we even started designing the system. So our research infrastructure served many types of uh, research um, and science, like. It could be industry uh, industry partners using our supercomputing clusters for some of their research, or just some academic research and collaboration between different departments. Uh, all of this provides uh, uh, all of these researchers generate a huge volume of traffic, and it's very steady and it's in both directions, in and out of the network. So uh, usually we only think about the download speeds, but their upload is just as important as download for us. Uh, because we're uploading a lot of data to other institutes as well when we're transferring, transferring data out of here. So uh, we definitely sustain a sustain uh, 10 to 30 gigs of data uh, at any given point, uh, usually in the 10 to 20 Gbps range. And uh, we frequently get bursts of 60 plus Gbps. Um, and this is why typical inline IDS solutions or IPS solutions are not feasible because A, they cannot handle that large amount of traffic, especially when there's a burst of traffic through the links, and B, it introduces, uh, introduces significant amount of latency uh, as the traffic gets um, analyzed. Uh, yes? Yeah, one thing about this, uh, I would expect that kind of these scientific workloads, a lot of this may be uh, loading in large data sets where, you know, if you know, adding even 100 milliseconds of latency is probably not a big deal as long as you can handle the throughput. Uh, whereas others could be some sort of distributed computing where they're actually using this cluster and some other cluster elsewhere. Uh, do you have any idea what the types of traffic and whether it's actually d 
just you know, large volumes of data being sent one way or whether it's actually really interactive where the latency would matter? Um, uh, that is something that we will go over uh, as the presentation goes along the later stage. We'll talk about the types of traffic we see. Uh, but um, uh, when we get to the Q&A session, we will have uh, one of our um, full-time engineers actually talk about the traffic that they see on a daily basis. But we definitely do see traffic both ways. And uh, given the traf uh, science DMZ model, we tend to uh, not introduce, uh, we tend to introduce as little latency as possible. Again, it's very uh, important to some of the researchers where the traffic remains low latency. I'd like to say something now, if that's okay. Yeah. yeah. Press the button. This? Okay. So we do see a, a couple different kinds of, of traffic. So one thing is a, a bulk data transfer that either comes in or goes out of the network. But we also see uh, a lot of cases where we have data that is accessible via like a global federation of, of storage. So we, we'll see jobs at MIT, Caltech, wherever, actually running there and reading from our storage. So in those cases, increasing the latency by a bit could have a pretty severe impact. And with the, I mean, with the amount of data that, that we receive and with the expectation of how fast it should show up, a lot of times adding additional latency, even like in the hundreds of milliseconds, can cause a pretty serious problem. Because if, if somebody from, from CERN says, okay, we need to transfer this 20 terabyte data set to your site because we need to, to analyze it, if it's not there within you know a, a day or so, it's actually a problem. So they, so we want to make sure to keep keep the links as, as wide open as possible. Okay. Uh, so yeah, as I was uh, talking about, like we transfer a lot of data. So uh, just here in the graph, you can see that over the last three months, we have transferred about twenty-seven petabytes of data, both in and out of the network, uh, and. Um, as you can see, these shaded areas right here, those are the bursts of traffic when uh, CMS decides it wants to transfer terabytes of data for, to some uh, resource not on our infrastructure. So you can see, like again, there's a huge burst as well. So uh, it is very important for our infrastructure to be able to handle huge bursts of traffic when we are monitoring such uh, bulk loads. Um, yeah, so as you can see in the bottom, the statistics, it also says that uh, the max uh, outbound uh, speed was 80 gigs a second, and inbound speed max inbound speed was about 71 gigs per second. So again, very high throughputs. And uh, traditional uh, IDS IPS solutions uh, cannot handle that amount of traffic uh, without causing significant issues. In fact, sometimes routers cannot handle that much amount uh, that amount of traffic without causing significant issues. Um, so because of these complex challenges and complex constraints, uh, we have created an entire system consisting of multiple modules uh, to uh, create a solution, like a complete solution um, made up of different modules and different pieces. Uh, so as you can see, this is a high-level overview of what our architecture looks like for Pulsar. Uh, so going. Uh, Left to right, top to bottom, uh, we have the network taps layer. The network tap uh, layer is the layer which duplicates the traffic which is going in and out of our network and sends it to us. Uh, so we get the data um, uh, that we are supposed to be monitoring. There's the traffic distribution layer uh, which will um, 
distribute all of the traffic uh, into chunks uh, of TCP and UDP flows or any other flows that you can think of uh, to our analysis cluster. So it's like load balance. Uh, there's the traffic analysis layer. So it is a cluster of Zeek IDS server. So just to uh, let you guys know, Zeek is uh, formerly known as Bro. So Zeek is a network security monitor. So if you are familiar with Bro, Zeek and Bro are the same thing. It's just uh, Zeek uh, was renamed uh, from Bro. Uh, so a cluster of Zeek IDS servers, uh, they analyze all of the traffic that is sent to them. Uh, from the traffic analysis, uh, uh, there are two things that happen. Uh, number one, uh, uh, we log every single traffic that we see. Obviously, so all of this logging uh, logs are stored, and uh, we do multiple different things with the logs, like storing it in cold storage for a long time in text format, as well as like sending it to a visualization cluster. There's the alerting layer, where once we uh, flag malicious or weird traffic, uh, and depending on how we have configured or fine-tuned our system, uh, the system will alert us when it sees something that is of interest to uh, the team. And the last uh, layer is the blocking layer. The blocking layer is uh, so something that is currently under uh, development. So the eventual goal is to automate the entire system so that the system can automatically, uh, automatically block malicious traffic. Uh, this is slightly challenging and slightly uh, important to uh, tread carefully with because uh, there are there is a lot of uh, constraints when it comes to like uh, like the stakes are very high when it comes to false positives and false negatives especially false positives for example you see some uh, malicious traffic and then you decide to block half of internet for produce research infrastructure because that can happen you you know, you know these kind of things can happen so that is something that we are treading lightly with but that is currently under development and strategies are being developed for that so uh, as i was talking about the uh, the net uh, as I was talking about the network taps right here on the top left, the, these are what our network taps look like. So uh, there's the, there are the two campus core routers and the two research core routers, as you can see right here and here. Uh, we have tapped every single link going between these four routers. So this is where the Pulsar system resides, because uh, like in a logical, uh, in a logical diagram. Uh, these taps are uh, fiber optic taps. So there are fiber lines and there are optical taps. So they're pretty cool because uh, what they do is they actually split the light in the optic cables. So a part of the light goes ahead as intended, and the second portion of the light comes to us. And as you can see, there are two uh, dotted lines coming out of each tap is because uh, there is basically a link for both inbound and outbound from each tap uh, as we are um, uh, duplicating all of the traffic. So as you can see, this tap is like pretty much inline and introduces like next to no latency because uh, this is literally us splitting the light while we're trying to get the data. So all of this traffic goes to the Arista layer. The Arista layer uh, is our traffic distribution layer. Uh, the two Arista switches, uh, they work together. Uh, they're configured to work together. They look at all of this traffic and then they take, um, uh, then they distribute traffic to each of the server based on flows, so TCP flow, UDP flow. So the idea is that each flow would uh, typically like just go to a single machine, so even if it, if it sees the flow from somewhere else coming in. So we try to distribute it by flow everywhere. And at the bottom, as you can see, from the Aristas, uh, the traffic is getting distributed to a Zeek cluster. Um, there are about 10 servers in there. And we will talk more about that as we go along. So when we're talking about the cluster down there, 
the cluster runs the uh, core of the system, which is called Zeek. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's a highly parallel network security monitor. Um, Zeek is very popular. It's used in the, uh, widely in industry and in government. And um, as it is gaining popularity, this was uh, the best choice for us to use. Zeek is made up of four major components. There are the workers, which are uh, the main process, so to speak. They are the process that analyze and log traffic. Uh, each process is single-threaded, but multiple instances of the process can run per server. So for example, if you have a 24-core server, you can run 22 instances of Zeek on it and pin each of them to a CPU and leave two cores for something else, whatever it needs to do, like other functions. There's the manager process, which is responsible for configuration of the cluster. Uh, it contacts the workers uh, when there's a configuration change or an administrative function to be performed. So this ensures that um, uh, whenever you're trying to deploy a Zeek worker cluster, you can just say, uh, you can just perform like a, a Zeek deploy uh, on the manager, and the manager will automatically contact all the workers and uh, get the configuration changes done and do other administrative functions like power off, reboot, everything of that sort. Um, there's the proxy function, which is uh, also very important because this ensures that the entire Zeek cluster is uh, context aware. So it maintains like the state of all the Zeek workers in relation to each other. So for example, if you see, uh, so for example, if you see a lot of um, uh, traffic on one uh, one machine and a part of the traffic on the other machine, part of the attack on the other machine, uh, the proxy can help you identify the entire uh, entire attack as a whole. And uh, last is the logger function, which receives and deduplicates all the logs, um, just an additional uh, work uh, process. Hi, I'm Lauren. Um, I was more on the like IT security and policy side of things. Um, so Pulsar and the technology underlying it, which is Zeek, um, it logs all of the traffic going to and from the science DMZ. Um, this, at the very least, fills our auditing functions that we need. Um, it also breaks out the traffic into individual logs based on criteria, which I'll talk more about later. Um, it detects any suspected security incidents and flags them and sticks them in separate logs so they're easy to find. Um, and it is also able to send email alerts based on specific incidents that we have told it to do. Um, eventually, we're working on putting together a team of individuals to either respond to these alerts manually or um, find, we might find a way to automate this, like blocking them at the edge router. Um, all of this is determined by local policy. Um, so you have to set this up and basically tell it what you want it to do with different kinds of traffic. Um, so the power of Zeek, which is once again the underlying technology, is really um, customization. It uses its own scripting language, which is Zeek scripts, and everything is configured through this. Um, what that means is that you can basically set it to do whatever you want. Um, so you can load a script to detect a specific security incident. You can write your own. Uh, you can change the way that the logs are configured or laid out if you would like. Um, so that's a really cool thing about it. Um, when setting this up, specific, uh, specificity is a really important factor. Um, so for example, you can say that um, all SSH traffic should be logged, um, but SSH brute forcing attempts should be logged into a separate log. And then you can say that you only want alerts to be sent about the SSH brute forcing attempts that are successful. Um, that way that um, we're not spam spamming analysts with like alerts that you really can't act upon. Um, another cool thing about Zeek is that you can integrate a lot of custom scripts. There's a lot of scripts that are already out there on the internet. 
Um, and they're really easy to just plug in and you can do a lot of cool things with it. Um, or once again, you can totally just completely write your own script. Um, so some cool ones that I've integrated, um, I've integrated an SSL fingerprinting script. So what this does is it um, gives us some insight into what services are running on our encrypted traffic. Um, so that's pretty cool. Um, I also have a Bitcoin mining script because, you know, you wouldn't want that to happen on a supercomputer. Um, so um, that one is able to detect if someone's running Bitcoining on the supercomputers and then we can shut that down. Um, yeah, um, once again, so there's, I mean, it's really easy to integrate it with outside services. So that's also a plus. Um, we've integrated threat intelligence into Pulsar. Um, threat intelligence is basically data points that you've gotten from the community that um, tell you about malicious actors. Um, so for example, this might be IP addresses, host names, file hashes, that kind of thing. Um, so we pull this into Pulsar and then it compares it against um, the traffic that it sees. If there's a match, then it'll flag it as malicious and stick it in a separate log so that we know. Um, and then once again, we're working on developing the next steps as to how to follow up on that. Um, we're currently using AlienVault OTX. Um, it integrates really well with Bro, and there's a you know wide array, array of community intelligence. Um, what we are, and it's free, but we are looking into um, some services that other universities use so that we can get data that they are like, data about threats that they're seeing on their research networks because that might be highly relevant to us. Um, so, like I said. Um, one of the cool things about Zeek is the way that it breaks out the logs. Um, so you have sort of general logs. For example, con.log is all the traffic that comes across the network. Um, it all goes to one place. There's also protocol-specific logs. So for example, http.log, ftp.log, dns.log. Um, if I want to see only http traffic, I would go to that log and I can see it there. Um, there's also logs that flag sort of specific events. Um, so weird.log is sort of strange traffic or malformed traffic or traffic that's um, non-typical. Um, this might be indicative of a security event, but we really don't know, so it's something to keep an eye on. Um, this is also a good place to figure out if you, know, you have things that are not configured the correct way because there's a good chance it'll show up here. Um, another log is notice.log, so this is basically where any events I've told it to flag get flagged. So my, my example of SSH brute forcing, um, that would go into notice.log. And then um, anything in this law, you can create an alert upon. So, for example, um, all of the SSH brute forcing attempts are logged into notice.log, but um, only the ones that are successful result in a notification being sent. Um, intel.log, that's where our threat intelligence hits go. Um, so if you look through this, you'll see basically anything that's been um, hit upon. Um, all of these are, once again, loaded and altered by site policy. Um, Pulsar is highly customizable, which is its benefit. Um, below, you see an example of a notification. Um, so, for example, here um, we had a situation where there was an internal host. Um, actually, the second that we turned on Pulsar, we saw this. Um, there was an internal host that was scanning um, nodes within the research network. This thing was on the research network, and we were able to find it and shut it down. Um, as you can see, this is kind of customized in the sense that I can specify that this is a local host that is scanning things. Um, that way I'm not sending massive amount of alerts based on anything that happens to poke the network. Um, so that's kind of cool. Um, so here's an example of the connection log. Um, this is con.log. You can see, um, I don't know, like the originating IP address. You can see the responding IP address. Um, we mark these with different levels of sensitivity. 
Um, so this one is sensitive because it contains IP addresses. Um, we're, we're, once again, we're looking into anonymizing this data so that researchers are able to use it. Um, and determining these sensitivity levels has been part of getting that set up. Um, below, you can see an example of what the log actually looks like in practice. Uh, so my name is Brian, and I have been primarily uh, responsible for the log distribution, indexing, and visualization into our data. Uh, and this is the logical overview of the entire log distribution portion of the Pulsar project. Uh, there's quite a lot going on here, and I'll go through it really quickly as, as I go through. Uh, on any given day, we generate tens of gigabytes of log data a day, usually uh, around 20 to 30 gigs. Uh, and this data is stored in multiple places and utilized uh, in a multiple different ways. So the first uh, location that we store our data is our long-term GPFS storage location. And we write logs directly from Zeek uh, to this location in plain text for data backups. And in the future, it'll hold as a placeholder for uh, sharing this data with researchers uh, so they can utilize it in machine learning projects or other uh, uh, computational research projects that they see fit. Uh, the second location that we store our logs is a Kafka data broker cluster. Uh, we write these logs here via FileBeat. Uh, so as logs are generated uh, on the Zeek side, we transfer those to Kafka. Uh, writing uh, logs to Kafka in lean of uh, writing them directly to Elasticsearch gives us uh, a few different benefits. One is that Kafka will act as a buffer. Uh, as Shivam had mentioned earlier, sometimes we see huge influxes of data and data connections on the network. And we don't want to overload the Elasticsearch cluster and hinder our ability, high-speed ability, uh, to visualize our data in any way via Kibana. The second benefit and the main benefit of Kafka is that it gives us a very modular and centralized location uh, where we can gather and distribute uh, data across many different producer and consumer uh, applications uh, instead of just Logstash or, uh, excuse me, Elasticsearch and Kibana. Uh, so uh, we can collect additional data from things like uh, syslog servers or get additional uh, NetFlow data. And then we can distribute that data uh, along with the IDS data that we've already been collecting to other consumer applications like Hadoop for batch processing or uh, Spark for additional data processing. And in the future, when we get the uh, anonymization portion finalized, we'll be able to stream anonymized data directly to custom applications written by researchers or utilized by researchers. At the latter portion of the overview, we have our Elasticsearch indexing cluster. Uh, here, uh, our data is actually uh, stored and indexed uh, to make it more easily searchable uh, via Kibana. Uh, the latter portion also acts as the SIM for the IDSP security analysts. Uh, so with Kibana, we can create custom dashboards uh, and also get additional alerting based off of those dashboards. Uh, so ITSP can utilize these dashboards for, uh, to investigate correlation of events on the network. Uh, to see maybe whether or not uh, past events have been, uh, attacks on the network have been successful, or if ongoing attacks need to be uh, further, further investigated. Uh, if uh, things need to be further investigated, these dashboards also give us a very dynamic uh, ability to narrow down on specific time windows and data subsets to get us a really up close uh, look about what is happening on our network at any given time. Um, so, uh, as we were talking about the data anonymization portion of this, uh, so the logs that are generated by, we, uh, uh, by Zeek are a valuable resource uh, for the network uh, data, uh, network characterization data. Uh, and we anonymize this so that researchers can perform analysis on it without like uh, violating the sensitivity of the data. So, we use multiple uh, tools to anonymize the data. 
Uh, one tool that we use is CryptoPan, uh, uh, which uh, provides a one-to-one -one mapping uh, for any IP addresses that may be in the logs. So what this means is that, uh, for example, if there's an IP address, CryptoPan, or CryptoPan will uh, uh, preserve the uh, network prefix of it. So for example, like 10.4, and the last two uh, octets will be uh, uh, encrypted uh, in a one-to-one -one fashion. So anything from, let's say, 10.4.1.1 is mapped to 10.4.1.2 in the uh, encrypted logs. It will remain consistent everywhere in the encrypted logs, so uh, it provides additional value of actually performing analysis based on hosts. Uh, we've also made use of random salt and hashing, and the Python scripts have also been developed um, to anonymize some of the other logs in Zeek. So just to give you an example right here, uh, there are three fields that uh, we would normally encrypt uh, in a uh, connection log, and those are the original responding and the tunnel IPs. So these are IPs that we encrypt uh, with a one-to-one -one mapping. Uh, two fields, which are the layer two original ad origin address and the destination address, those are salt and hashed. Uh, these are usually the MAC addresses of the routers, so they don't provide that significant amount of uh, uh, insight for the researchers anyway, so we decided to just salt and hash it just to, uh, and we also do not want to like uh, give up actual data there because that is also very sensitive because again, router MAC addresses. And we drop the node name, which is the, um, basically the Zeek worker that actually logged this. It's irrelevant to researchers, so we just decide to drop it. Uh, so this is a very cool diagram because uh, this shows us some of the operational observations we had when the system went live. Uh, the first thing uh, that we discovered was obviously that there are many malicious external hosts that are constantly scanning for these research infrastructure for open uh, services. Um, and it could be NMAPs or just like actually like look, uh, looking for like actual services like uh, open ports. Uh, this uh, diagram shows uh, the connections uh, over a week. Uh, the uh, part shaded in blue is any connection that is initiated but does not receive a response. So you can see a majority of the traffic that we see is a connection that is initiated but does not get a response. And this includes all the scanning that is happening on a network. Um, on any, any given hour, we see over 1.5 million connections. And uh, this diagram is very cool uh, in the sense that it validates the functioning of our system. Uh, because as you can see, there's a clear dip right here, uh, somewhere around day two. Um, if you, uh, when we actually saw the dip, we actually went to our Slack channel and went to the time frame when the dip happened. And in the operation cha operations channel, we could clearly see the network engineer talking about bypassing one of our taps to perform a network upgrade. And as soon as the upgrade was complete, the tap was back in production and all of us, we see all of the traffic again. So this just shows that, this just was a good validation that we are actually seeing traffic and the taps are working properly and so on and so forth. Okay, um, so we've had, I feel like we've had a lot of impact by imp implementing Pulsar. Um, so previously, like Garrett kind of talked about, we didn't have any network level um, security monitoring over the research network. We had host-based monitoring and firewalls, essentially. Um, so this really is a significant increase in terms of the security that we have over the research network. Um, this was something that was really desired and will also allow us to process different kinds of data and partner with people that we couldn't before. So for example, um, now we can handle HIPAA data in a way that we weren't allowed to do that before. Um, so it increases, I guess, sort of the value of our data center. Um, 
So we've, like I said, um, internal hosts, um, this was flipping the lights on. Um, we found that we have some that have been kind of a bigger threat than we've realized. Um, so for example, like I was saying, on the first day we turned it on um, and we immediately saw um, a host that was on the research network compromised and it was scanning the inside of the research network and um, transmitting this data out. Um, it was actually scanning a report that could have resulted in an attack and like it was trying to get a remote shell basically based on this port, we think. Theoretically, uh, it could have. So either way, we found this host and we were able to disable it, uh, which is not something that necessarily would have happened if we hadn't had Pulsar. Um, we had another case where um, there was basically a team of researchers and they deleted part of their Samba share. And they came to us and they were like, hey, what happened to my Samba share? And we were actually able to go through and see the commands which they issued deleting their share. Um, so it also provides us some, like, I guess, insight into that kind of thing that happens. Um, we have like a number of alerts coming in each week. I've really been working on getting these fine-tuned so that it's really only flagging the important things. Um, so um, we have maybe like 30, 40 alerts each week so far. Um, and we've had the Pulsar team um, analyzing these and forwarding them to IT security as needed. Um, yeah, so... Um, yeah, so in conclusion, um, we've really heightened the security over the research network. It's been a really positive thing. Um, work will continue on sort of fine-tuning the system. Um, and I think as it's used, maybe we'll discover different security vulnerabilities or issues that we want to monitor for, and maybe we'll implement a script or we'll um, change how the logs are configured out because, once again, very highly customizable. Um, and then um, we're working on getting log the logs anonymized so that we can provide these to researchers and provide additional value this way. Um, I've been really lucky to be a member of this student team that got to have really hands-on research with this as an undergrad. Um, this wasn't a toy project. This was a really cool thing that I got to do. Um, I want to thank you for listening. Um, let us know if you have any questions. Thank you. I have one. Some of the some of the rules that you're using. I mean, you had to. Was this or the the scripts? Were these things that there's kind of a standard set out there you chose from? Were many of them things you had to write, or could they be automated? Do you think it's a mix? Um, so basically, when you install Zeek, it comes with a set of scripts that um, are basically automatically activated. Those are sort of the ones that log all the traffic. Um, it checks certain security events and it separates the traffic out into logs. Um, there's also another set that comes with it that um, are kind of optional. You can do things like trace route, like flag for that. Um, you have to decide whether or not to turn these on. And then, I mean, there's some totally outside scripts that I've also found and integrated. Um, and it's, it's also a matter, it's not just a matter of like um, turning on or off the scripts or like writing some of them. A lot of it has been integrating it with outside services so that it's able to work that way too. Um, yeah. Yes, we have a question in the back. What do you think your biggest challenge was, like starting from the beginning to now, that you overcame? Uh, um, Eric, you're probably better for this one. Yeah. I mean, do you have? Uh, well, so, I mean, there are many challenges. Yeah, we we all face separate challenges. So, but uh, well, I mean, I think the number one challenge was just designing something that didn't increase latency. I mean. 
it was such a big network. There really wasn't a solution out there or one that we had really heard of that was able to handle multiple hundred gigabit links. Um, there was sort of a similar system that was instituted at Berkeley, but it was on 100 gigabit link. Um, and we really don't even know of one that's this large even remotely. Um, so that's been a big challenge. Yeah, one of the biggest challenges that uh, uh, I face, and um, Eric and I worked on it for a very long time, was that uh, at certain points we would only see half of the traffic in the system, like when it was initially uh, when it initially went into production, and we spent probably weeks like trying to figure out where the problem was because uh, half the time would uh, Zeke would start screaming at us saying like fifty percent of your connections are half duplex, and we don't know where the other half of the traffic is going. So eventually we found out like after a lot of troubleshooting and. During the troubleshooting, we also added a lot of uh, monitoring features at every layer. Uh, but uh, after a lot of time, we figured out that um, there was a network link uh, that was active on the research core that was not supposed to be active. So half the traffic would go up a link that was monitored by us and come back the link that was not monitored by us. And that happened because there was a rollback in a network upgrade that we were not aware of. So uh, it is very important to also look outside the department. Uh, we thought it was a problem on our end. And we probably spent weeks figuring it out, but uh, that was a big challenge. Well, I would say another one is, once again, we didn't have any network level monitoring over the research network, so we really didn't know what the traffic was. Um, so trying to decide what security policies to implement and like what to look for um, was kind of a process because we just really didn't have any knowledge of like where to start. Um, so I think that was another big challenge, and it's continuing to be an ongoing one. And one last challenge is uh, definitely managing alerts. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is, uh, so just to give you some perspective, when Lauren was first working on alerts, uh, uh, she did not, uh, so we talked about specificity is key. Uh, well, uh, that is there for a reason, because Lauren was not specific enough, and uh, uh, I went to sleep and I woke up, and overnight it had sent about uh, 60 to 70 alerts to my email uh, on the mailing list. Uh, that we have, uh, so it was uh, just insanity trying to manage just my inbox at that point. Uh, so we have been fine-tuning the system over a long period of time to actually get to a point where uh, only the important stuff is import uh, shown. What was fun that week? That week it happened over the weekend, and the server actually filled up. So I was kept going in and trying to disable this, and I couldn't because it wouldn't push my change because the server was full. So it just kept going all weekend. It was great. Yeah, and. Uh, <laughs> All the former students who worked on the project unsubscribed from the mailing list, which was very funny. Yeah. Because, and uh, they were pretty mad about it. But, uh, it was funny. <laughs> it was very funny at that point, I guess. Any other questions? I'd like to thank you for the presentation and for the work you've done to keep our, our unit systems, uh, research systems going here. Awesome. Thank you.